Thank you. Um, sorry I missed last week. As you'll hear from my voice, I'm still, I'm at the tail end, I hope, of a cold. Um, I understand that the handouts I prepared last week, or, and I sent um, way too many handouts, but I guess that they all got printed and they got taken. Did people have a chance to, and there are more, there's still some left. Um, did people have a chance to read them? I just want to get a sense of whether... Well, why don't we start out also for the sake of my voice with any questions or feedback you have about the different statements before I kind of get into a, an analysis of them. Any questions or thoughts about what you read? <clears throat> well, let me start. I'll start out this morning then. You can raise your hand as questions come up uh, with Barnett's theory of interreligious dialogue. And this is actually a theory that I think applies to lots of different kinds of conversations, including any kind of negotiation, which is that in any interreligious dialogue, you actually have three simultaneous sets of conversations going on at the same time. And they're kind of always in tension with each other, pushing back and forth. So first you have the obvious one, in this case, Christians and Jews sitting down to talk to one another. There are lots of things they could talk about. Um, so that brings me to the second set of conversation. They're talking about something. Um, and in the overview I've given in the past couple of weeks, sometimes they're talking about what happened during the Holocaust. Um, sometimes they're talking theology. You know, what do Jews believe? What do Christians believe? Uh, where do we have shared beliefs? Where do we have beliefs that don't, that conflict with one another? Um, and then you, you have sort of reference to other things going on in the world. Uh, very often in the past 55 years, the, the Middle East conflict, um, sometimes other issues. I mean, there's been a rich Jewish-Christian conversation about civil rights in this conversation, about different social issues. So they're also kind of playing off of that. And the third set of conversations, which is in a way a very important one that often gets overlooked, is that... Um, you know, Christians and Jews in conversation with one another are, in a sense, representative of their traditions. Um, you know, they're coming into that conversation as, you know, a Christian, and, and the Jews have certain ideas of Christianity, or as a, a Jew, perhaps Reformed, Orthodox, or Conservative. Uh, you know, they're coming from a different community within that larger scope of what we call Christianity or Judaism. Um, and so they always kind of have another conversation in the back of their mind thinking, well, you know, is what I'm saying really representative of all Christians? Or should I make clear that I'm just talking right now about Episcopalians um, or evangelicals? And so, you know, you've kind of, and then you always have the assumptions that the other person brings into the conversation about what they think Christians are. Perhaps their, their understanding of Christianity is shaped by an encounter with somebody who was Methodist or Catholic. And so, you know, they, they have kind of that window on Christianity. So it's a complicated set of conversations that are pushing back and forth. And on the one hand, this is what really changes a tradition. And I think one of the things uh, that needs to be emphasized is that since 1945, there has been a profound change in how um, Christians think about their scriptures, their liturgies, um, you know, sort of their basic texts um, with regard to Judaism. If you go to seminary now, there's very often um, a, a Jewish person uh, who's teaching Old Testament or teaching some other um, discipline to really acquaint Christian seminarians with the, this other tradition. Um, on the other hand, it can also be, be a stumbling stone. Um, you know, Christians may be able to go only so far in the conversation. The same is true for Jews. And so you have these three different conversations going on in any interreligious dialogue, uh, which can make it very rich. It can also make it very frustrating. And the last um, statement, that the, chronologically the last statement that I distributed last week, um, this one, the Presbytery of Chicago, I don't know if people had a chance to read this, but this is a fascinating statement um, because it really, I think, is the product of these different conversations. And one of the things that they do in that statement, um, if you go back and reread it, is that they reference these other conversations. They say, as Presbyterians, we are aware that we are speaking with regard to these issues, and people reading this will be thinking, you know, will be having these other conversations in their head about what we're what we're talking about, um, and, the, and the Jewish partners say the same thing. So let me give a very quick run through because I missed last week, 
and we were going to talk about this last week, and today I was going to talk about Bonhoeffer. So what I'm going to try to do today is give a quick overview of this and then talk about Bonhoeffer. So we started the course with the Ten Points of Salisburg, 1947. These are Christians and Jews talking in conversation with one another. But the Ten Points were written by Jules Isaac, a Jew who had just lost his family in, in the Holocaust and who had you know, a very specific agenda. He wanted Christians to hear what he had to say about Christianity and what it had taught about Judaism because he believed that that had really led to, you know, Christian assumptions throughout the Holocaust that had led them to be so complicit with National Socialism and had allowed um, the Jewish people of Europe to be targeted in the way in which they were. That there was, although National Socialism was a political uh, dictatorship, there was sort of an underlying theological set of assumptions that had created this deep and per pervasive anti-Semitism. So this is, this is really talking theology. He's referring very specifically to certain Christian teachings that, that the, the, you know, he as a Jew found so problematic and asking his Christian counterparts in the conversation to begin to tackle these issues and to interpret these things differently. Um, now, quick flight to resources, and I will actually send this uh, to Amy. If you want to read every statement that's ever been made uh, since 1945, the top website link is, is where to go. And it's a really interesting website. So this is the website of the Council of Christians and Jews in the United States. So it has a lot of articles, a lot of statements about contemporary issues, uh, but it also has these statements um, and with some background for each one. And so if you were to look at this, um, this is a place to go. Frank Sherman's two-volume book, Bridges, uh, Documents of the Jewish Christian Dialogue, um, also has all these statements with a very helpful introduction. Sherman was, uh, for many years, the um, interfaith, uh, or the director of the interfaith office for the Evangelical Lutheran Church of North America. Um, and then Mary Boy's um, anthology, Seeing Judaism Anew, Christianity's Sacred Obligation, is a little anthology. It's, it's really helpful, though, because you have... Christian scholars who have been dealing with these um, these issues for decades, and many of the people who contributed to this volume were sort of the, the pioneers in the field, uh, talking about all these different elements. So you've got a chapter on the Middle East written by a, a man who for many years uh, led the Tantur uh, Institute in Jerusalem. You've got a, you know, a chapter on the deicide charge. You've got a chapter on liturgy. You've got a chapter on the Holocaust. So it's a great anthology. So back to a couple of the statements that I handed out last week, and I'm just going to sort of talk about the setting for each of one before I um, sort of generalize about them. The World Council of Churches, uh, which officially constituted itself in 1948, um, you know, had to refer, think back to these multi-leveled conversations that are going on, referred to a number of things. So it acknowledged what had just happened in the Holocaust. It reaffirmed the evangelization of the Jews. This was a big point. This is one of the back, back behind, backdrop Christian conversations that always goes along. Um, you know, where do Christians then stand with regard to the evangelization of, of Jews? For Jews, this is a, a highly problematic um, issue for many Jews it's a deal breaker I mean they don't see any point in dialogue if this is the ultimate goal is to make them leave Judaism um, and this was very controversial in Amsterdam I think maybe I mentioned this the first week um, I taught but um, years ago I had an I, I was able to interview Gerhard Riegner who had been the head of the World Jewish Congress in Geneva during the Holocaust and he had met every week in Geneva with his counterparts in what was then the incipient World Council of Churches um, and really built an alliance. I mean, they were working together on refugee issues. There were some very good people in the Geneva office. And so there were, it was not just a collegial relationship. It was, it was a personal friendship. And he told me that his friendship broke off with them after 1948 because of that second point. He sort of, he wrote Visser Hooft, who was the head of the World Council of Churches and said, you know, how can you, how can you commit to this? given what has just happened. And the friendship only resumed in the late 1960s when Wissertuf wrote him, apologized, and actually began a conversation about the historical record of the World Council of Churches. But I don't know what I just did. <clears throat> hmm. Let's see if this, this is what happens when you're holding something and you hold buttons or you push buttons. Oh, thank you. Okay. Um, so then the, the third issue was the issue of anti-Semitism, uh, which is also very important. And the fourth uh, 
the state of Israel had just been founded. Um, and this was an issue for Christian churches long before 1948 because of the historical relationship with, with Arab Christian churches that comes out of the missionary movement. Um, and so already in 1948, they're beginning to navigate this highly contentious uh, issue. And you can see, you know, if you go back and read the statements I, I handed out last, last week, you know, it, it sort of says from the beginning this adds a political dimension. Uh, we can't get into the political aspects right now, but we're appealing to everyone for you know a peaceful approach to this pro, uh, problem because from the very beginning, um, the Christian churches in particular saw this uh, both as a political issue but also as an interfaith issue and also as a, a deeply Christian issue because of the historical role of, of Jerusalem and the Middle East in, in Christian history. Um, Fast forward to Nostratate, the famous Vatican II document. This is so. First of all, Nostratate, which means in our time, was actually a statement on the Catholic Church's relationship to all religions. Uh, we tend to remember the section on Judaism, but it, it begins with sort of a general statement about the role of religion in human life, how important religious traditions are to all those who practice it. Um, talks about Hinduism, Islam, and then gets to that key statement in chapter or paragraph four that relates specifically to Judaism. And here is where Nostratate broke new ground. Um, it officially repudiated the, the so-called deicide charge, um, you know, the so-called curse on the Jewish people that really had been part of the propagation of the church until that time um, and had helped create this anti-Semitism in Western culture. Um, and, and then, you know, directly... Um, you know, challenges um, and criticizes anti-Semitism in, in all of its form. So it was a highly symbolic um, statement that was welcomed by Jewish communities around the world. There was a long history of Jewish Catholic background negotiation and conversation leading up to that point. Um, so again, this is an example of sort of an, a Jewish Christian conversation that leads to a change in Christian teaching. Now, in response, um, there are also statements that come from the Jewish community throughout this history. Uh, one of the most famous ones is a statement called Dabru Amet, which was uh, published in 2000, uh, put together by something called the National Jewish Scholars Project, which actually uh, came out of the work of the Institute for Christian Jewish Studies in Baltimore. Uh, these were Jewish scholars from around the country who met for several years to craft this statement. Um, and it was one of the ones I, again, I handed out last week. I can send all these to Amy if people are interested and just read. Okay. Uh, but they, they, they made a number of points. And so here you can see this is a statement that, that in, immediately seeks common ground. They say, we worship the same God. We're looking at the same book. Uh, Christians can respect the claim of the Jewish people in Israel. They accept moral principles of Torah. And then Nazism was not a Christian phenomenon. Um, this aroused a lot of controversy in some parts of the Jewish community because the, the um, you know, the, the, aftermath of National Socialism and the Holocaust still sat so deeply, um, especially among the survivor community. Uh, but it, but the, the Jewish scholars who put this together, I mean, this was important for them to say to distinguish between what happened in Nazi Germany and Christianity itself, that the anti-Semitism in Nazism was not simply some, some form of Christianity. Um, and then they go on to, to these other points. Um, and then the final statement that I mentioned was this fairly recent one uh, between the Presbyterian Chicago and the Jewish community. So they actually go back through earlier Presbyterian statements, um, look at it was the occasion was the anniversary of Nostratate, so they wanted to reference this Catholic document, but also talk about sort of the ways in which it had influenced Protestant life. Um, offered a th some theological affirmations of the Christian-Jewish relationship, um, you know, talked about the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And, and I, I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, to really read this statement because this was uh, the process of, I think, about two or three years of conversation, negotiation. It's a, it's a really interesting attempt to address this in conversation with, with the Jewish community. Uh, when you look at Christian statements on the Middle East, very often they come specifically out of Christian circles. This was an attempt to do that in conversation with Jews, in which they're really pushing each other. Um, but, I, but I think it's, it's a remarkably open and, you know, it's both open and respectful, uh, which is a hard thing to, 
to pull off in some of these contentious um, conversations. And then living together as covenant peoples, trying to find some common ground on which Christians and Jews can address not just their theological relationship, but their ongoing social relationship. So looking at these different kinds of statements, I sort of pulled from all these statements to uh, give you some examples of different kinds. I mean, one is the denominational or ecumenical, which is this 1948 statement from the World Council of Churches. Um, over the years since then, there have been other ecumenical statements. So you find sort of a development from this 1948 statement that builds on it, uh, but continues to look at the new issues um, and, and continues to address the hot button issue of the Middle East. <coughs> then you have Jewish Christian statements, statements that are made in deliberate conversation with one another, where the end result is something that comes out of that conversation. Salisburg is an example. This 2015 statement is another. You have statements that come purely from the Jewish community, which are in response to what has happened in the Christian world. Um, they're often really... Um, strongly appreciative. I mean, they recognize the remarkable ways in which Christian teachings have really changed since 1945. Um, and, and you really try to, again, build this common ground in conversation. And then the Catholic statements, Nostratate um, being the primary one, but there have been another, a number of ones since then. If you were to go to the website I mentioned, uh, you would see, for example, a lot of statements by different European countries, by the French bishops, the Polish bishops, uh, German bishops in which they're referring specifically to the history of their country during the Nazi era and building on that. Um, so where does Dietrich Bonhoeffer fit in? <laughs> uh, well, one thing I, I would emphasize always is that, you know, obviously he's not a post-Holocaust theologian. He's murdered in April of 1945. Um, but because Bonhoeffer is such a seminal figure, um, in Protestant theology. I mean, I always emphasize this, that you know, Catholics tend to focus on Pope Pius XII. Protestants focus on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. They're very different figures. Uh, but Bonhoeffer speaks to Protestant Christians in a way that is, uh, I would say, really unique. I mean, it's very striking that you have this you know, German theologian from the 1930s and 40s um, who has been translated into, you know, over a hundred languages, his books are read around the world. Um, Christians from all different kinds of backgrounds you know, read him and really connect with, with his theological language. I think some of that is due to the drama of his life, uh, but some of it is due to the fact that he really had the gift, I think, of speaking um, about Christian faith in a way that resonates across the spectrum. And, and this is just fascinating because, you know, evangelicals, mainline liberals, um, you know, everybody in between, I, I mean, people read Bonhoeffer and, and there's something about Bonhoeffer's work that speaks to them. So in terms of the issue of Christian-Jewish relations, um, I think there are different ways in which he fits in. But because he's not writing after 1945, you know, he's not looking back on the Holocaust and trying to address it. And I think that's important to remember in reading him. So one, one thing is um, the very first Sunday I talked about the different ways in which Christians during the Nazi era addressed Nazi anti-Semitism. And the fact that there weren't that many who were addressing these theological points at that point. Uh, but the ones that did challenge the Nazi regime and were critical of it tended to speak from what I call a civil liberties perspective. That is, they looked at the Nazi persecution of the Jews. They said, this is wrong. Um, and and they, so they spoke from it that way without necessarily working out things like the deicide charge. And this is certainly true of Bonhoeffer. Um, you know, I think that his early uh, statements in 1933 uh, show very clearly that he saw right through the Nazi regime. I mean, he writes at one point, you can be national socialist or Christian. You can't be both. And his essay in 1933 in April called The Church and the Jewish Question, that's the argument he makes. In fact, he, he, in this essay, he actually claims that the Nazi um, regime is not a legitimate form of government. And the reason it's not legitimate is its persecution of the Jewish minority. 
Um, at the same time, in this essay, there is one paragraph that if you were to boil Christian anti-Semitism down into one paragraph, this would be it. I mean, it, it's, it, I, and I didn't bring the slide with that paragraph here, but, you know, it sort of starts out the church has never lost sight of the fact that the Jews, cursed by God, you know, I mean, it goes into the sort of refusal of Judaism to accept Christianity and the fact that until Jews accept Christ, uh, they will be sort of cursed to roam the, roam the earth. Um, and so it's a deeply offensive and problematic paragraph for Jews. Um, I think it's the main reason that Bonhoeffer has never been recognized by Yad Vashem in Israel as one of the righteous of the Gentiles. Um, it's something that comes up if you talk about Bonhoeffer in a Jewish-Christian setting. Uh, they always say, well, you know, did he ever repudiate what he wrote here? Um, and, you know, he didn't really. I don't think that he ever theologically worked out a different reading of Christianity that allowed for the validity of Judaism. Uh, what he did do was understand the nature of the Nazi persecution of the Jews as a political, nationalist, ethno-nationalist um, issue and was strongly uh, condemnatory of that. So that during the 1930s, what you see in Bonhoeffer, and his focus, of course, is the confessing church of which he was a part, uh, but he was somebody that people came to if they needed help getting out of Nazi Germany. Uh, very often these were um, Christians of, um, baptized Christians of Jewish origin uh, who under the Nazi racial law were now categorized as Jews. Um, <clears throat> but there is also evidence that he actually helped some observant and secular Jews um, get visas or gave them connections to help them get out of Nazi Germany. As I mentioned on one of the Sundays I've discovered in some Jewish archives in this country that he actually had contact of some kind uh, with a man named Rabbi Morse Lazarin from Baltimore, uh, who was working for the National Conference of Christians and Jews, spent several months in Nazi Germany in the spring of 1935. Um, and so, you know, there, there are connections of Bonhoeffer to these kinds of circles that we're just beginning to uncover. He also makes very specific protests throughout the 1930s. Um, in the debates in 1933 about the so-called Aryan paragraph, which barred people of Jewish ancestry from the civil service and in within the church from having church positions. Um, 1935, um, he took his seminarians to the Steglitz Synod of the Confessing Church in Berlin. Uh, this was two weeks after the pass of the passage of the Nuremberg Laws. Uh, there were confessing church figures who felt that the church should make some kind of statement supporting the Nuremberg Laws. Bonhoeffer goes there with all of his students and they raise a lot of ruckus um, from the upper rafters of, of the meeting, which was held in a church. Uh, they weren't allowed to speak because they were just students, uh, but they, they made their feelings known. And the other thing at Steglitz is that there was actually a statement submitted there uh, by a church social worker um, arguing that the church really had to begin to speak up on behalf of all Jews in Nazi Germany. Um, and Bonhoeffer and his seminaries were there to really push for that to be affirmed. Uh, it didn't even come to a vote. Uh, one of the bishops um, there at the, at the synods famously said, if we put this on the agenda, we'll become a target. So they kept it off. Um, but you know, Bonhoeffer obviously was pushing for the church to speak out. One year later, uh, they did, in a sense. There was a confessing church memorandum that was drafted to send to Adolf Hitler personally. It was meant to be a personal or a private communication to, to Hitler in which the confessing church listed all of its opposition to what was happening in, the, in national under National Socialism, and one paragraph explicitly condemned anti-Semitism. Um, a very strong paragraph. The memorandum was leaked to the foreign press, um, so all of a sudden it was out there in foreign newspapers. Uh, the Nazi regime reacted uh, very strongly, arresting the people that they could find who were associated uh, with this memorandum. Uh, we know that Bonhoeffer was sort of in the background of the original draft. <coughs> Excuse me. So this, again, is sort of a, a sign that this is something that he was pushing for within the church. Um, and in 1941 now, this is during his resistance period, uh, he co-authored a memorandum to the Allies about the deportations of the uh, Jews of Berlin, which had just begun. Uh, this is the point in which, through the resistance, he's, got, he's carrying communications to people overseas. Uh, so this memorandum went both to some of the German military leaders in the hope that we kind of push them to 
finally try to overthrow the regime, but it was also sent abroad to let people know what this, what this looked like on the ground, what was happening. Um, I would say that one of the, the from my perspective, um, the way in which um, Bonhoeffer begins to operate as a post-Holocaust theologian is one that we often overlook, which is that you know, the internal critique of his church, the confessing church and German Protestantism as a whole, that begins after 1939, in which he obviously feels that the church has really failed to give any kind of meaningful opposition against the Nazi regime, um, and failed in, on, you know, theologically, um, spiritually, uh, politically. Um, and so if you read his wartime writings, um, his writings in his book on ethics, um, certainly his prison letters, in which he begins to talk about the failure of the church, I think he's, it's a remarkable analysis of how you know, a, a, a church or, uh, as a group of you know, well-intentioned people who are trying to be faithful in some way to the teachings of Christ um, don't rise up to the task, and, and especially in um, his prison letters. There are, there are letters in which he really uh, goes into this, and he criticizes for its nationalism. He criticizes it um, for failing to speak out on behalf of those persecuted. Um, and then, you know, his, his focus really is that it was only interested in its institutional preservation, that German bishops um, were so afraid of being, you know, under pressure by the Nazis that they failed to speak out and that they, they failed really to, to be disciples. Um, and in Bonhoeffer's work, you can see in these late writings a real continuity uh, from his earlier work on discipleship, you know, his notion of what the church was called to be in this world. Um, so it's a logical place for Bonhoeffer to go. But I think that that internal critique of the church really does bring different insights into post-Holocaust theology. One of the comments I, I would make, though, um, is that after 1945, uh, you kind of have two tracks of sort of post-Holocaust theology. Uh, one is what we've been focusing on in the past couple of, of weeks, this uh, you know, conversation with Jews about you know, the history of the Christian-Jewish relation, the history of anti-Semitism, the way in which certain interpretations of Christian teachings had laid the foundation for political anti-Semitism, and as a result, the desire to reflect in a new theological way on some of our texts, on some of our teachings. Um, the other trajectory is you know, actually the one I think that comes more directly out of Bonhoeffer, which is this political critique of a church that fails uh, to stand up for victims, a church that fails to engage with the political realities around it as, as, as a church, as, as the body of Christ in this world, as a group of disciples who are called to witness to uh, the teachings of Christ um, and, and to really sort of you know, speak with a different voice. I mean, I think that that was Bonhoeffer's endeavor in this regard. Um, that was, it wasn't just a political witness, and he's often kind of put there. I think it was something much deeper, uh, that Bonhoeffer, you know, read the Christian texts in a way and, and tried to shape his own Christian life and shape the life of the seminaries who he taught. Um, to bring an entirely different spirit and voice into his times. There was nobody else in Nazi Germany uh, that would speak with this voice if it wasn't the Christian church. And you know, he felt by the end of his life that the church had failed to do this. Uh, but I think that he certainly tried um, to, to speak with that voice. And I think that it's that aspect of his theology that continues to resonate so deeply when Christians read him today. I mean, there's something there that people really connect with that makes us stop and think about you know, how, how well we live up to uh, the expectations of what it means to be a Christian. So I'm going to stop there because um, I wanted to give time for questions and comments. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think, I, like I said, you know, at the beginning, he's so unusual in that regard. Um, and I think that's why people really connect with him. Um, is that he, you know, it, the, the day after the um, coup against the regime in July 1944 that failed, uh, Bonhoeffer writes a letter to his friend Eberhard Beko where he talks about a conversation he'd had years before with somebody who said, you know, I want to be a saint. You know, somebody who really had this aspiration to live life in such a way that they kind of fulfilled sainthood. And, and Bonhoeffer said, I replied, I didn't want to be a saint. I only wanted to learn how to have faith. Um, and it's an it's an interesting distinction, you know. I mean, Bonhoeffer is often sort of put in the sainthood category, uh, but but that you know his own self perception that having faith uh, was what was going to make the difference, um, I think, is a really interesting one to think about. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. He did. Yeah. He came over in 1939. Um, he was at that point the the German the regime had already started military conscription. Uh, he did not want to serve in Hitler's army, um, and so he reached out to ecumenical contacts in this country who invited him, and they thought they were bringing him over to the safety of exile. They planned a national tour. He was going to teach at Union Seminary, um, and he got over here and immediately just felt as though he had made the biggest mistake of his life. Um, and it's interesting reading his New York diary. You know, he was in New York for six weeks at Union Seminary. And it's, in the Bonhoeffer works, it's one of the most wrenching documents. It's deeply personal. And Bonhoeffer didn't write that much that was deeply personal. But you can see how ashamed he is, how, how he's really suffering. He's reading the Bible every day, sort of looking for you know, some kind of guidance um, and kind of gets it. I mean, he realizes within the first week that he needs to go back. Now, the big, you know, in, in Bonhoeffer hagiography, he goes back to join the resistance. I don't think it's quite that clear. I mean, he certainly knew, you know, through his family contacts that, that you know, there, were re there was talk about resistance. But at that point in 1939, there was no concrete plan. Um, I think he went back primarily because of his seminarians. You know, he had been educating these young men for a ministry in Nazi Germany, trying to kind of give them backbone, teach them how to be the kind of pastors they would need to be in for all he knew was going to be a thousand year Reich. I mean, you know, it was, it was a very deliberate kind of spiritual formation. Um, and then he had come over here where he was safe and sound and all of his seminarians were facing military duty. Um, and, and I think it kind of hit him that he couldn't do that. And so he, he went back. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm trying to think the numbers. He he had about, I think, 155 seminarians who went through the Finkenwalde seminary that he led. Um, I think over half of them were killed on the front. Um, some of them survived and then later wrote about their experiences with, un, with him. Uh, but a fair number of them, and they were sent 1939. I mean, they ended up on the Eastern Front. Um, in volume 16 of the Bonhoeffer works, um, the first part of volume 16, there are a number of really moving letters both to the seminarians themselves and to the families of people who had been killed, where Bonhoeffer, you can really see Bonhoeffer's pastoral role. Um, and, and that's something else with Bonhoeffer we all often lose sight of, but you really see that in those letters, I mean, where he, you know, he was tending to them um, as they were, you know, fighting. <coughs> yes. Yeah. Sure. Um, so the museum um, was opened in 1993. Um, it's a federal museum. It was uh, created by a mandate of Congress in the late 1970s under President Carter. And the mandate was simply for um, some kind of memorial in Washington, D.C. to the Holocaust. It wasn't clear from the very beginning that this was going to be a museum. Um, Carter appointed um, a council to sort of talk about what kind of memorial they wanted to have. A very diverse and fascinating group of people that included my mentor at Union Seminary, Robert McAfee Brown. He was on the council. 
um, as well as people like Elie Wiesel. There were, was a Catholic priest on the council, Father John Palakowski, who's a big figure of post-Holocaust theology. So, you know, you had this, this group of people who were talking about, you know, what's the best way in this country if we're going to have something in Washington to memorialize it? And they ultimately decided on a museum um, that would tell the story of the Holocaust, um, but not only tell the story of the Holocaust as a museum, but ideally, and of course, they, these were visionaries, so they start out, you know, if we can do this, what do we want to have? Um, and, and they envisioned an educational outreach that would not just bring people through the museum, but engage with all different kinds of audiences to teach about the implications of this history for their their role, um, and then something that would really honor um, the victims of the Holocaust and connect this history in some way with the ideals of American democracy. So tall order, um, but they begin to plan it. So you know, between 1978, when the council was created, 1993, they opened this remarkable museum um, and raised a lot of money from Holocaust survivors primarily who really embraced the sense of larger outreach. So that my position, for example, was, was funded by a very generous gift uh, by Leroy Hofberger, a, a man in Baltimore, um, a philanthropist, who really wanted some kind of outreach and education for Christian churches. Um, and Hofberger stipulated that his gift had to be matched by, by a Christian donor. He really wanted this to be a Christian Jewish thing, so a Christian donor was found who um, donated money. And, and so that's just one example of a donor because we had a lot of donors who uh, donated money for different forms of education, for um, our work on contemporary genocide. You know, we, we deal with a lot of issues that come out of the Holocaust. And on the one hand, as a museum of the Holocaust, our job is to make sure all these different audiences get our history right. I mean, that's what we can contribute to these conversations. But it's also a way of bringing new kind of new communities in and in conversation with this history um, and really finding its lessons for them, which is, is one of the most rewarding parts of, of the work. So we have a large staff, um, I think over 400 people at this point, uh, who deal with um, different audiences. We work with members of the military. We work with uh, members of the judiciary. We've had special exhibits on the history of the medical profession during Nazi Germany in which we worked with the American Medical Association and put together a special exhibition. Um, so we've done lots of you know, exhibitions and programs on very specific um, aspects of the history. We now have a number of installations at the Museum on issues of contemporary genocide. Um, so we've worked a lot with policymakers, with the human rights community, um, you know, trying to you know address these issues. So it's it's sort of a multi-faceted approach um, built on the history itself. We also have um, one of, I mean, one of two, I would say. Um, of the best collections um, doc of documents and archival resources and libraries on this subject matter in the world. I mean, the other would be Yad Vashem in Israel. Uh, but we have, uh, on the fifth floor of the museum, many people don't realize we're up there, uh, we have a research institute with a terrific library and archives and documentation, oral histories and photographs, so that if scholars are doing research on this history, um, we're really one of the places they want to come. And so we have about 25 visiting scholars every year from around the world who come and go through our archival collections. And we continue to collect. Um, and in my own field of work, I mean, my, you know, my job started out being programs and outreach to Christian churches about the role of the churches during the Holocaust. But my interests have always been kind of bigger as well. Um, so they're not just historical, but also theological. And also sort of the interfaith angle. What does it mean for an interfaith community to look at this history together? Christians see this history through a particular lens, Jews through another lens. Um, other religious groups look at this and immediately connect with it. I've, I've done a lot of work with the Sikh coalition in this country. The Sikhs have a history of religious persecution, and so they immediately connect with uh, the issue of persecution. Mormons um, connect with issues of religious freedom and persecution. So people you know, come 
with their own background and history and they find things in this history that resonate and the result is an interesting conversation. Um, so in my own work, I've really very deliberately expanded it um, to what I call a multi-religious format for understanding this history. Um, and I've been working a lot in the past couple of years with interfaith organizations and especially with Muslims, Christians and Jews who are looking at this history together. Um, I have an advisory committee, for example, and we now have two Muslim members on the committee, one of whom uh, just wrote a wonderful book, if I can plug her book, called The Shoah Through Muslim Eyes. She's a Pakistani Muslim woman, heads a Holocaust and Genocide Studies Center up in Manhattan, um, and, and you know has looked at this history as a Muslim woman who works a lot with Holocaust survivors, talking about how her religious framework helps her understand this history. And all of these conversations kind of give you new insights. I mean, one of the new historical areas, for example, um, comes from the collections we've recently acquired from North Africa, which was under German occupation. So you've got a lot of documentation of about the local populations um, in North Africa that, that really gives us a lens on things like Muslim rescue, uh, Muslim collaboration, what the Muslim-Jewish relationship was like in North Africa before the Holocaust. And these are all kind of pieces of the puzzle that help us understand this, this history better. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, 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 I mean, one of the interesting things is you you feel like you know this Holocaust history has been done because there's so much that has been published about it, um, and yet you know you keep seeing new things um, as a result of new scholarship. So you know, that was a longish answer. Yes, sir. Yeah. Sure, sure. The question is, how did Jews understand the Holocaust in light of the much longer history that goes back into the Old Testament? You know, the flight from Egypt, the Babylonian exile. I mean, these this sort of long history of persecution, exile, um, a religious grappling with that. I mean, it's a wonderful question. Um, I think in different ways. <laughs> Um, I mean, if you talk with different Jewish scholars, everyone sort of has a different take on that. But certainly, especially in the immediate wake of the Holocaust, where you had, you know, Jews who had just lived through that, Martin Buber, Leo Beck, Emil Fackenheim, um, Jewish scholars and theologians who, who were wrestling religiously with this um, in a very deep sense. And some of them came to the conclusion that, you know, God was dead, that the, the God that they had believed in didn't exist if this could have happened to their people. Um, others wove it into that longer narrative. Um, others, you know, dealt with it in, um, I would say, more philosophical framework. I mean, there's a huge diversity in the Jewish scholarship on the Holocaust on precisely this point uh, because it's such a seminal one. Um, I mean, and, and this too, this is also part of the grand sphere of you know, post-Holocaust theology is when you really look into um, the, the ways in which the Jewish people wrestled with what, had, what happened. Um, even during that era, I have a, a colleague at the museum who's been building a website on Jewish responses during the Holocaust itself, and she's going into letters and diaries and account of religious communities, and it's tremendously moving. I mean, to see the people who were caught up in that, you know, writing about, in some cases, really, you know, their religious life, which becomes more central than others. I mean, some people who have been secular and find themselves in, in the ghettos and camps uh, really holding on to this religious tradition or for the first time understanding their association with it um, and, and others who really struggled with it. So it's, it's that too is a rich body of literature. Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, did everyone hear the question? This is about um, the Jewish community's reaction to the tension between looking at the Holocaust as a Jewish event, as the specificity of that, and um, you know, people who look at it in a much broader context, which is kind of what I've been doing here, um, as you know, one of 
different kinds of genocides and, and looking at that multilayered. I mean, that's an excellent point. And there really, there's a tension there. Although I think, so let me just start out with the survivors. I, I think that people who went through the Holocaust themselves and survived um, and really understand, you know, their lives as Jews, you know, being, you know, part of that event, um, you know, it's difficult for them to see, not to see it through a specifically Jewish lens. Um, and it, when the museum was founded, especially, I think that we created the, the narrative in our permanent exhibition, really sort of telling that Jewish story with reference to other victims. I mean, we certainly have uh, sections in the exhibit on other victims and sort of trying to get people to understand the political nature of National Socialism, but you're really focusing on the persecution and genocide of the European Jews. The field of Holocaust studies and genocide studies, which kind of came out of it, um, has in the ensuing 25 years gone much bigger, uh, where many people with whom I work who are teaching the Holocaust, they're teaching it as part of a larger course on something else. Uh, they're teaching a course on contemporary genocide, or they're teaching a course on Bonhoeffer. Or, yeah, they're, they're, so there's, there are a couple weeks in there about the Holocaust, but it's, it's in relationship to these other events. I think that... that that tension needs to be held. I mean, I think there's, there's really, one needs to understand the specific nature of how Jews were targeted uh, for complete annihilation and all of the implications of that in European culture. Um, while I also think one needs to understand the dynamics of that and perhaps the dynamics of other events, whether it's the Rwandan genocide or you know other things, um, there, there's similarities in their contrasts. I mean, every not just genocide, but every um, event of collective political violence has certain unique features. And I think the Holocaust has certain unique features, but they also all have, have things that are very analogous. Um, so that, you know, I, I wrote a book on bystanders, for example. Um, and I one of the reasons I wrote it was I was really trying to look at that figure of the bystander, because I think that that's a, a point of commonality in virtually any event like this you can look at. There are bystanders in all genocides. Uh, there are bystanders in all, in all wars in which you know, civilians are murdered in, in mass. Um, and to understand why people remain bystanders or why they move from being bystanders to either being perpetrators or rescuers is an important thing to reflect about. And so what I argue in my book is that the bystanders during the Holocaust, you know, they're not simply motivated by anti-Semitism. They're motivated by a number of factors that we see in other um, genocides as well. And so, you know, the, the exploring the tension between that particularity and the universals, I think, is, is a rich conversation. But it's, for, for, for some Holocaust survivors, it's a difficult conversation to have. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Yeah, oh, I see lots of questions. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question is, for a normal Christian family, at what point would they have recognized the essence of what was going around them and really known about certain things going on in a way that they had to reflect on whether or not to react? I would argue from the very beginning. I think that it, I mean, to some extent, it depends on where you are. Um, if you were in a big German city like Berlin or Hamburg or Frankfurt, Certainly from the very beginning of 1933 when Hitler came to power, you saw stormtroopers on the, on the street. You heard things. Uh, you know, the, Jewish boy, the boycott of Jewish businesses was April 1st, 1933. Um, you know, there were things out there that, 
that very clearly showed which way the wind was blowing. Um, in rural areas, villages, maybe not so much, although there are accounts of you know, small towns in Germany in 1933 for, where literally from one week to the next, uh, the non-Jewish population begins to keep their distance to the Jews because of you know, what's coming out in the propaganda. Um, so, so, you know, there, there are things that people could have known. Uh, the question is, at what point did the alarm bells begin to go off? Um, and, you know, the reality is throughout the 1930s um, that the Nazi regime was very popular among, among Germans. I mean, there was a lot that they liked about it. Uh, they felt that, you know, Hitler kind of had restored pride to Germany. He was putting people back to work. He was bringing Germany back to its feet. Um, and so if you weren't, Jewish uh, political opposition figure, some, you know, some group that was being targeted by the Nazis, you could pursue, you know, your normal life and go about your business, and you just kind of didn't, you kind of decided to ignore some of this stuff, um, and and I mean, this is one of those interesting things. Um, one understands the human reasons. You know, you have a family, you know, these kinds of responsibilities for deciding that you're, you're, you're going to keep your head down. At the same time, you have people from 1933 on who really step up and, and speak out um, and sort of show that that was possible. And Bonhoeffer, of course, is one such person who, from the very beginning, says, you know, Christians need to look at what's going on. So that tension is, is very much what plays out in the 1930s. Yes. Uh, I, I appreciate any comments you might add on Bonhoeffer's awfully great. Yeah. But before you do that, uh, my father was the military governor of the Tempelhof area of Berlin. Oh, wow. Taking over from a Russian major. Huh. Would your son like to bring those to the museum? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, yeah, so um, one thing I haven't talked about, but because you raised it, let me, let me mention it before I get to Bonhoeffer, um, is that you do have, um, I mean, you had communities in this country, many of them of German descent, who were hearing from cousins back in Germany or relatives about how great things were. And so you, you had people in this country who, especially during the 1930s, um, you know, try to they they see Germany as a positive development, and they tend to brush aside the the criticism of it. Um, after 1939, of course, that gets much harder. But but there is this. I mean, there certainly is that phenomenon. Um, and the reason I'd be especially interested in what your son has is that our next temporary exhibit is going to be on America and the Holocaust. So we're looking at what people knew in this country, how they responded, um, and that that would be fascinating. Uh, but he also, we also have something on our website called um, Experiencing History so that uh, people from around the country, it's a crowdsourcing exercise where we've asked people from around the country, including a lot of students, to look in their local newspapers and send us the link to what their newspaper was reporting on during the 1930s so you get a sense of what people knew. Um, so Bonhoeffer is, among other things, really famous for his book on discipleship, which opens up with a, a sort of provocative statement about how the Church of Germany has fallen prey to uh, what Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Um, and he you know, defines cheap grace as thinking that, you know, uh, if you just go to church and you believe and the, the minister prays for your sin and you take communion and you go home, uh, you have been saved and nothing more is needed. Um, and, and, you know, this notion that grace can be purchased so cheaply, he says, has led to the uh, the distortion of the church, that the church itself no longer lives up to its teaching. Um, and of course, in writing this, he wrote this in 1935, he's looking at his own church and the way in which they have really succumbed and failed to witness to the teachings of Christ and become very comfortable in their privileged position um, as a dispenser of grace. And he contrasts that with what he calls costly grace, which is essentially being a disciple of Jesus Christ and following Christ's footsteps and really living the Christian life um, 
in a way that, that shows that it costs something, that it's not, you know, it's not enough to just sort of say you believe that this is really about living your faith in a way that might bear costs. Um, and it's a remarkable, it's a remarkable book. I, I reread it last year because Fortress brought out a new reader's edition of it. And it had been several years since I'd, I'd read it. And, you know, again, this gets back to Bonhoeffer's ongoing fascination. Um, you know, rereading something of Bonhoeffer's, you don't, you see something new in it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's not like rereading something where you think, oh, yeah, I'm right. I, I read that back in college. Um, there's, there's something really living in, in what he writes that continues to get people to think. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in Nazi Germany itself, uh, Germany was about two thirds Protestant, one third Catholic. Uh, the, by Protestant, that is primarily the Evangelical Church of Germany, which is the church that comes out of the Reformation. So largely Lutheran, although you have a Reformed tradition in there and sort of a, a united tradition that mixes Reformed and Lutheran. You also had smaller churches, uh, free churches. You had Baptists, Methodists. Um, so you have smaller churches in Germany. By and large, all of the Protestant churches, though, including some of these, these smaller churches, um, you know, find a way to accommodate themselves with the Nazis. And part of that was a deep sort of tradition of nationalism, especially in the official German Protestant church. That wasn't as true of the Catholic church because you had had, for example, in the 19th century, uh, the so-called cultural war in which Catholics in, in Catholic minorities in Protestant regions had been persecuted and kind of marginalized. And so you had kind of a Catholic tradition of a more critical stance toward the state that actually comes out, especially during the 1920s and the Nazi party as it's coming to power. Uh, you had several Nazi leaders who were very strongly anti-papist, anti-Catholic. Uh, they published things attacking the Vatican, and that too kind of put the Catholic Church on edge. So 1933 comes along, and the Catholics are very nervous, the Protestants not so much. Um, and so the Catholic Church signed a concordat with the regime in 1933 that it hoped would allow itself religious freedom. Um, and so the Catholic Church after that point does have sort of a, a cautious accommodation with the Reich. Uh, but you know, I, I've done some research in the Gestapo records and the observation, the surveillance of both churches, and it's interesting to see how the Gestapo always felt like they had the Protestants in their pocket. They weren't worried, except for the Confessing Church, but they were always worried about the Catholics because, for one thing, you know, you the Catholic Church leadership was in Rome; it wasn't German, and so there was that international component that made them feel that this was never going to be a real Germanic church. Um, so there, that. That kind of shapes that that you know sort of sifts down and plays out on a local level as well in terms of how local clergy and lo local bishops deal with issues. Um, although it should be noted that you have members of the clergy in both churches who become Nazi Party members. I mean, there were some Catholic priests who became Nazi Party members and and really supported the regime. So there's that as well. Yes. Would it be too great a leap to think of us? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. That analogy has been made, especially by a couple of Bonhoeffer scholars, uh, Larry Rasmussen, who's, who's a wonderful scholar, and James Martin Schramm, um, who I, I think is retired, but he taught at Luther College in Iowa, have really focused on environmental issues and kind of brought Bonhoeffer into conversation with that issue. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the bystander effect plays out in lots of different kinds of things uh, or in lots of different kinds of ways. I mean, I think it's a very human dynamic, the, the step by which we're willing to stop what we're doing and speak out on an important issue uh, versus just kind of going along and not, not getting engaged, you know. Yes? Going back to the 1933 essay. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, how we see God in the 
Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a wonderful question about Bonhoeffer's 1933 essay. So this is really complicated, <laughs> but let me see if I can sort of go through it very quickly. So this is an essay that was written um, for, a, for a publication, um, and Bonhoeffer was writing it in the immediate moment of the German Christian attempt to implement the Aryan paragraph in the church. So this is Bonhoeffer's message, first and foremost, to the churches about what this event is calling them to think about. Um, when you read the essay, and in editing the Bonhoeffer works, we have like three original drafts of the essay that Bonhoeffer worked on, so you can see his handwriting and he's numbering the paragraphs. In the first two drafts, this problematic anti-Jewish paragraph is not there, uh, which is really interesting. So it comes, it's inserted right before publication. Um, it's not part of his original thinking. And the essay can actually be read as an argument from point one to point ten at the end of why Christian churches need to reject the Nazi state. And I would argue that that's actually what he's arguing. So he starts out by saying, of course, Luther teaches that the church needs to, obedient, to be obedient, but what if a state is not legitimate? You know, how do we tell if a state is not legitimate? This is where he says if it's persecuting the Jewish minority, that's an illegitimate use of power under Lutheran theology. And then he goes through and says, so what do we do if it's not legitimate? This is the famous sequence for those of, those of you familiar. Uh, first, the church must speak out for the victims. Uh, then it must help the victims. Eventually, it may be called upon to put the spoke in the wheel to stop the state from turning. Um, so it's, you know, there's a clear development of thought within that essay where he's going from obedience to the state to maybe standing up and stopping it. Um, so that, that paragraph about Judaism that then gets put in before publication, um, you know, Bonhoeffer never said he didn't write it, um, but it's, it, you know, it, there's clearly kind of a background conversation that must take place where maybe the editor says, Dietrich, we need a chapter on theology in there. Um, and he puts it in. But, I mean, he never repudiated it. I think it comes out in his later theology that this is kind of how he, as a Christian theologian, understands Judaism. But it really is in tension with this very clear repudiation of the Nazi state. That is there. Um, and so I think, like I said, it's a very complicated essay for that reason. So I don't think it's just an anti-Semitic essay. It's, it's, much, it's much clearer than that, especially on the responsibilities of the Christians. But I also think it shows that he wasn't addressing the so-called Jewish problem as a theological issue. He was looking at it politically.